0: Welcome to Censored, the podcast that never gives up on the search for sexy bits in books. I'm Eva Vritnach, and I want to say thank you to everyone who supports the show. If you subscribe and listen, thank you. If you rate and review, thanks. And if you choose to join me on Patreon, thank you very much. Shout out to Robbo, who just signed up. Your support is much appreciated. This episode features a celebrity memoir, by the innovative dancer Isadora Duncan. I think you should take a moment to look at photos of her dancing, because they're all over the internet. These are remarkable images. Her energy and beauty in motion is obvious. In one image, the line of her arms and shoulders seems to ripple and undulate. I mean, it's a static photo, but you can feel how the dance was running through her bones. Isadora Duncan was wildly famous from 1900 to about 1920 when she toured Europe and America, exhibiting her pioneering dance to artists and paying customers. She performed in bare feet or sandals, clad only in a flimsy tunic, to show that dance was the first and most important artistic expression. Her personal life was as iconoclastic as her artistic manifesto. In this memoir, Is Adora Duncan a Life?, she declares that when she was a teenager, she resolved never to get married, consciously rejecting the constraints of the institution. As an adult, she went on to birth three children outside of marriage, all by different fathers. In stories so tragic they're almost unbelievable, all three children died young. The first two, Deirdre and Patrick, drowned when the car they were travelling in slipped into the Seine. Her last baby died in her arms shortly after his birth. She wrote this memoir in the mid-1920s, after her great fame had transformed into notoriety for her drinking. The deaths of her children had precipitated an extreme depression. Her friends and supporters hoped she would earn a decent living from the book, but she died in a car accident, a freak accident, before it was published. Isadora often wore a long scarf, perhaps a nod to the flowing material she wore to perform in. As the car she sat in drove off, this scarf became entwined in the axle and the force broke her neck. As if this wasn't grisly enough, her manner of death was embellished and exaggerated, with some reporting she was decapitated by her scarf. Honestly, hers is an extraordinary story in so many ways. This memoir was published in 1927, after she died. It sold extremely well in America, being reprinted nine times in ten months. The UK imprint arrived in Ireland in the middle of 1928, but was banned in October 1930. Until 1967, it was illegal to sell or import Isadora Duncan's memoir into Ireland. By the time it became legal again, She had faded from the public mind. She was no longer a celebrity. Now, there are lots of drinks that would match the book. For the first third, say, of the book, Isadora recalls her young, earnest and studious self when she drank milk and read Kant after her dance recitals. But once she awakens to desire, sex and love, she becomes a party animal, revelling in the attention she receives. So I have to choose champagne, really. There are lots of references to breaking out the bubbly in this memoir. And famously, in 1911, she danced at a party where 900 bottles of champagne were consumed. Obviously, my drinking aims are a bit more modest, but that's the thing with champagne. It's so festive. It's interesting that in this memoir, Isadora doesn't dwell on her later drinking, when she couldn't control it. She doesn't ignore terrible things that happened to her, But she chose not to write about that addiction here. So, why do I think it was banned? There are two explanations, really. Because she was Isadora Duncan, or because the book itself offended the censors. I'm inclined to think her fame was part of the reason. All that insistence on free organic movement, unhampered by tight clothing or shoes, that was revolutionary for a reason. And she was against marriage and in favour of free love as she calls it. Funny, I thought that phrase dated from the 1960s, but obviously not. To Conservatives, Duncan's life was suggestive of immorality. But you know, let's imagine they treated the book as an entity separate to the celebrity dancer. With my censorship spectacles on, I think they would have been spooked by the publisher's foreword. There, Horace Liverwright, which is a great name, wrote that the memoir ended before Isadora went to live in Bolshevik Russia. So she was a commie then. It's hard to think of a more politically odious position than that in Ireland, and indeed in lots of countries. In 1932, the governing party in Ireland fights the general election with a Red Scare campaign. So communists are certainly persona non grata. And then in the introduction by Isadora, she mentions the softness of her breasts. Well... That's it. Talking about boobs is definitely immoral and therefore illegal. But if they had kept reading, the Irish censorship might have ended right there because this book would have induced fatal coronaries in all of the people invested in banning books. She could have just wiped them all out in one go. It has some really extraordinary moments. For example, there's the love affair she has with André Bonnier, a French novelist. They were hanging out, what she calls a quaint and passionate friendship, and she decided to go all out to seduce him. She plotted to be alone with him, cleared the house of everyone, bought the champagne and flowers and dressed in a transparent tunic. André arrived and was horribly embarrassed, so much so that he wouldn't drink the champagne. Determined to get someone to make love to her, She's a virgin at this point. She started flirting with one of her other admirers. It was all going according to plan. They both drank the champagne this time, and they were booked into a hotel as Mr. and Mrs. X. This is how she describes what happened next. At last I would know what love was. I found myself in his arms, submerged in a storm of caresses, my heart pounding, every nerve bathed in pleasure my whole being flooded in ecstatic joy. I am at last awakening to life. I exulted when suddenly he started up and, falling on his knees beside the bed in indescribable emotion, cried, Oh, why didn't you tell me? What crime was I about to commit? No, no, you must remain pure. Dress at once. Well, that was a lot of purple prose that got us nowhere, wasn't it? What a letdown. She herself was astonished. Saying she felt dizzy, ill, and upset because she had no idea what crime he was talking about. Some of the more sceptical listeners will be thinking, of course, she knew what the moral standards of the day were. You'd want to be thick not to know that. But when you read this memoir, especially the early part of her childhood, you absolutely believe in her as a young person and a very peculiar young person. She's so thoroughly odd so young, that I believe she could be bemused. After all, she left school at 10 to start her own dance school, teaching children. I mean, she was a child herself. Most premature school leavers want to hang around the streets or get a job and earn loads of money to be treated like an adult. The thing about this third of the memoir is that she does genuinely sound like a young girl and a teenager. Her complete self-absorption, her blithe belief that she is the centre of the universe and a genius, it's a very teenage mood. For example, she tells a promoter that she had danced to, quote, bring about the great renaissance of religion through the dance, unquote. Dance has a capital letter here. I mean, the balls of her to say that to someone's face. There's so much of this sort of thing that the first time I started to read it, I gave up. She was just really annoying. I mean, maybe that's why the lads don't want to shag her. She's a bit of a pain and so transparently young. Sad to say, when she did finally sleep with a man, she found it was torture at the beginning. I think this is unbearably poignant. After all her hopes and dreams and expectations, it was miserable at the beginning. That sucks. But to be honest, a lot of this book reads like a society gossip column or a trashy romance novel. Isadora meets one famous person after another. If you're interested in the celebrity circuit before the First World War, this is a book you should read. She meets politicians, royals and artists from all disciplines. There's a lot of name dropping too, and I'm sure this helped the sales. But she doesn't neglect her artistic manifestos. She regularly tells us about her dance ideas and how she implemented them. In the middle part of the book, when she's a little older, her narcissism is less evident and you really have to admire her energy. She seemed to have a manic schedule of partying, dancing and travelling. Changing the world through dance sounds exhausting. Apart from the small things, like revolutionising the artistic spirit of the age, Isadora also said she changed fashions. She described wearing a swimsuit that sounds strikingly modern, low-necked, thin-strapped creation that left her legs and feet bare. I doubt she was the very first to wear such an outfit, because someone had to make it for her. But her appearance probably kicked off a fashion trend. After all, most women covered every inch of their flesh when swimming in the 1910s. There is a lot of clothing in this memoir and fabric, as you would expect, because the author has thought deeply about how fashion constrains the human form. The problem is really there's just too much in Duncan's memoir and it's a very scattergun uneven narrative. So I'm going to use censorship bingo to get a handle on it. I also strongly suspect that this book will score very high indeed. So we start with breasts. Yes of course there it is in the introduction and there's a particularly wonderful line about the sculptor Auguste Rodin She saw him take a piece of clay in his hands and she wrote the heat streamed from him like a radiant furnace. In a few moments he had formed a woman's breast that palpitated beneath his fingers. Yeah he was that good. He made clay come alive. Duncan did fancy the arse off Rodin but backed off at the last minute something her older self regretted. And this is how she puts it. Now this is quite funny. How often I have regretted this childish miscomprehension, which lost me the divine chance of giving my virginity to the great god Pan himself, to the mighty Rodin. Surely art and life would have been richer thereby. Yeah, I'm sure the earth would have moved for everybody if this had happened. So yeah, we can take breasts. Next up, bestiality. Well, no, not that I could see. Now she did just describe Rodin as the great god Pan who's half goat, but since she doesn't shag him, I can't take it. Then sex work. I was surprised to find that I didn't think so. Now she is quite oblique a lot of the time, so I could have missed it. And I confess my mind wandered occasionally when she was gushing about celebrity and genius and stuff. Then we have racism. Oh yes, I am afraid so. There's quite a lot of it. Now, it's remarkably free of anti-Semitism, which I was expecting. That's probably because her lover, Paris Singer, was the son of an American Jewish millionaire, Isaac Singer. Yeah, the guy who invented the sewing machine. However, she is really nasty about black American music. You could explain this away by saying that she has a philosophy of dance that is opposed to popular culture like jazz. And jazz, after all, was huge, much more popular than her own work was. But I don't think we can let her off the hook that easily. The way she describes black musicians as producing barbarous yelps and cries is pretty racist. It's not just, I disagree with their music, it's something much uglier. She's really prejudiced about jazz and uses a lot of racial terms to express that. Like this bit, for example. It seems to me monstrous that anyone should believe that the jazz rhythm expresses America. Jazz rhythm expresses the primitive savage. America's music would be something different. It has yet to be written. Yikes. That is ugly stuff. Of course, she wasn't the only one threatened by jazz at this time. In fact, the people who decided to ban her book in Ireland would have wholeheartedly agreed with this. They were all anti-jazz. But since she was a pioneer of work that was often labelled indecent, it's extremely depressing to see her fall into the same trap as the most ignorant critics. So yeah, I have to take racism. Lots of it here. Then we have drugs. Actually, yes. Duncan even describes a drug-addicted nobleman who carried a silver syringe with him. She says after he injected himself in front of everybody at the table, Afterwards, his wit and gaiety knew no bounds, but they said he endured terrible sufferings in the daytime. So, yeah, can definitely take drugs then. Next up, politics. Absolutely. It's stuffed with political thought of all kinds. Duncan actually can't help being political. Everything she sees about her life and the people's lives around her, it can all become political in her mind. So, yeah. There's the obvious sympathy for communist Russia, especially their great marriage divorce setup, but there's also calls to provide pain relief for women in labour. Then she critiques schooling and how boring and unchild centred it is, and then talks about child rearing practices as suffocating creativity. I mean, every opportunity she gets, she holds forth on social and cultural reform. She's political all the way to the marrow. So yeah, definitely take this one. Then we have swearing. Hmm, I don't actually think so. Her own writing style is very refined. Uh, you couldn't imagine her swearing. But there is, remember that bloke who refused to sleep with her, who told her to get dressed? Afterwards, he swore so savagely that she was frightened. So I think we could take that there, just for the hell of it. And then infidelity. Well, in terms of marriage, like, she doesn't believe in it, so she's not bothered. The object of her first serious passion when she's just a teenager. He's a married man, much older than her. Bit gross, but anyway. And then she also talks about setting up various married people with each other to the chagrin of their spouses. So yeah, she definitely talks about infidelity in marriage. And she also movingly talks about infidelity in her free love set up when some of her lovers turn to younger women. And I found that interesting how her free love manifesto can struggle when her emotions are involved. So yes, definitely ticking infidelity. Then crime. I don't think so. I mean, some people would say a lot of her life was criminal, but not really. I don't think we can tick that. Then genitalia. I'm afraid not. She's very discreet and coy about the mechanics of the body there. Then we have abortion. Definitely. In fact, quite a long passage in which choice is debated. When she was pregnant the second time, her doctor was shocked that she would sacrifice her art and profession for the sake of another child. After all, she can't dance when she's pregnant and her body after the first child took some time to come back to normal. In fact, in some ways was never normal, she acknowledges. She takes time to consider her choice, but goes ahead with the pregnancy. Abortion itself isn't mentioned, but this conversation with the doctor implies a choice. Her sitting alone to think about it, all of that brings abortion into the narrative. So yeah, definitely ticking it. And then we have orgies. I hardly ever tick this, I think only once, but I'm close to doing so again. Duncan offers what she says is an apology for pagan love. This was a time in her life when she went straight from the stage to an after party, wearing her gauzy dress tunic, her head wreathed in roses. As she says herself, I was so lovely, why should not this loveliness be enjoyed? Then she talks about the divine pagan body. The passionate lips and the clinging arms of some charming stranger. I think this is quite suggestive. I know she isn't a writer who's going to open the bedroom door wide and actually talk about what bit goes where. So you can't be sure if she means one partner at a time or more. But she acknowledges this is a highly sexual time of her life. And she could have tried anything. I think the word pagan as well. I think that's quite suggestive. And also, I refuse to believe that spectacular parties with the wildest people of the day don't feature the odd orgy. So I'm going to take it. Then, sexual assault. Yes, I can take this one too. There's an astonishing bit where her then-boyfriend, Gordon Craig, is having dinner with her. And around the dinner table are Duncan, her very pretty secretary, who's not named. Gordon Craig and Konstantin Stanislavsky, a famous theatre director. Craig asks her if she wants to stay with him or not, and this is what happens next, according to Duncan. As I could not answer, he flew into one of his old-time rages, lifted the secretary from her chair, carried her into the other room and locked the door. And you just read that and think, excuse me? And that's really all she says. They try to get in, but he won't open the door and then they leave. So he abducts this woman effectively and they just walk away and leave her. This is the most decorous, weirdest way to talk about rape, and I think it is rape, that I've ever read. So I can definitely take sexual assault for this. This incident is interesting for censorship reasons too. In the reading I've done for this episode, some say this bit was cut from the American edition, but I read it in the 1928 American edition, so I'm not sure if this is true. I can imagine publishers would have worried about libel here. Gordon Craig was very much still alive in 1927. So yes, ticking sexual assault. Next up, extramarital pregnancy. Well, yes, She does have three children outside of marriage and she doesn't apologise or worry about this because she thinks marriage is shite. I do love her unrepentant attitude. Then there's masturbation. Another one I rarely tick, but yes, I think I can argue that she writes about masturbation. She has this huge crush on a bloke, but nothing physical is happening. So she writes, I could no longer eat or sleep and often lay awake all night, my lithe, feverish hands travelling over my body, which seemed to be possessed by thousands of demons, tried in vain to subdue or find some outlet for this suffering. I think this could be read as masturbation, don't you? Feck it, I'm going to take it. Duncan is just bold enough to refer to this, however obliquely. I mean, if she'd written relief, then I could be sure, but I think... No, I think this is about masturbation. Next up, sex toys. Uh, Unfortunately not. Obviously, there's lots of props. She does like to stage her sexual encounters. She pays great attention to the champagne and the drapes and the clothes, uh, but there's no actual sex toys mentioned. Then feminism. Well, what could be more feminist than her trenchant critiques of marriage? and her opinions on childbirth and pregnancy and sexual expression of the mature woman. I mean, there is so much feminism in here. Absolutely. If I could tick it three times, I would. And then divorce. Yes, her own mother divorced her father and never saw him again if she could help it. It's interesting that Mammy Duncan was of Irish Catholic descent Isn't it funny how Isadora Duncan hasn't been recruited to the pantheon of the Irish diaspora? Like on the anniversary of her death or birth, we don't have specials on the radio or the odd newspaper article. Her scandalous behaviour, I think, has kind of put us off. Then contraception. Surprisingly, no references at all. I'm sure she knew what technology was available. If she knew about abortion, I can't imagine she was ignorant of contraceptive devices, but there's nothing here, so I can't tick it. Then menstruation. Unfortunately, not, and I'm a bit disappointed because she talks about the body a lot. And she's not shy telling us about the pain of childbirth. She doesn't talk about this at all. I suppose even a scandalous bohemian has her limits. Next up, blasphemy. Of course, she doesn't believe in conventional religion. She thinks dancing is religion, actually. You could say she believes in the Church of Isadora. So yeah, I think we could take it for blasphemy. She's completely without religion. Or morality, some would say. Then oral sex. No, I don't think so. Like I said, there are no details from the bedroom. Those who fall to their knees are not doing that. Graphic violence. Well, no. But she does say she witnessed the burial of dead Russians shot by the Tsarist forces for protesting their poverty. But that's more the aftermath rather than the act, so I can't take that. And there is some dispute as to whether she's actually fibbing here. And then finally, LGBTQ plus content. Absolutely lots of it. A lot of the people that she mentions are clearly gay. She mentions a dancer called Louis Fuller and her entourage and I'm going to read this bit out to you because it's really good. I found Louis Fuller surrounded by her entourage. A dozen or so beautiful girls were grouped about her, alternately stroking her arms and kissing her. In my rather simple upbringing, although my mother certainly loved us all, she rarely caressed us and so I was completely taken aback by coming upon this extreme attitude of expressed affection, which was quite new to me. Here was an atmosphere of such warmth as I had never met before. Isn't that interesting how she deflects there, and she takes away the sexuality of the scene by recalling her mother and expressions of affection between relations in a family? I think she's doing this deliberately, and that's just one of the famous... Gay people that she meets on her travels. She talks about Archduke Ludwig Victor of Austria, who had no interest in women because he preferred beautiful young officers. She does say that she was sorry for him when he was exiled to a castle on his own and claims this was because he was a little bit mad, but actually it was his openness about his homosexuality that led to this incarceration. And of course, Duncan herself had a relationship with a woman, an American poet called Mercedes de Costa. Her memoir shows that the rich and the bohemian were granted some leeway in the expression of their sexuality. At the time, the press didn't do real-life exposés of celebrities, and so they were free to love who they wanted, but only if they kept it within certain circles. So within the circles that Duncan sees in Europe, there's a lot of what is considered, at the time, transgressive sexual relations. And that's the end of the censorship bingo. What is the score for Isadora Duncan a life? If I just count it up I see we have 17 out of 25, which is massive. For 1927, it's pretty much unprecedented. It's one of the highest scores so far up there with, say, The Ginger Man or Portnoy's Complaint. To write a memoir so transgressive in the 1920s
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: With an eye to commercial publishing is pretty extraordinary. And she got away with it, too. The publisher went ahead and printed it. Now, there is much discussion about whether Duncan herself wrote the book that we read today. I mean, did the publishers rework it? They could have done since she was pretty dead and so she couldn't object to any changes they wanted to make. There are also suspicions her friend, Mary Desty, added bits. But the narrative voice has a lot of integrity. It doesn't feel like a patchwork of authorship. I mean, it feels pretty all over the place and a bit scatty, but that's a uniform feeling rather than in patches. It feels to me like one person wrote most of it. So Duncan does deserve kudos for getting such controversial content into this popular and widely read book. But I don't know if I'd wholeheartedly recommend it. It's an interesting read but it's not a great literary one. You might get annoyed sometimes by it. What saves it from reading as antique gossip is her grandstanding on politics, art and sexuality. She was uncompromising in so many ways. You can't help but admire that level of determination. I mean, the vision she had and the energy she expended to put it into practice. Isadora Duncan was a -a once-in-a-generation kind of artist who knew her own worth. It might be hard to like her, really, but it's impossible not to admire her. Next episode, I'll be returning to magazines, those pesky publications the censors tried so hard to control. Till then... Keep your hands clean and your minds filthy.